Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and welcome to the show. My guest this week is Sarah Gadden, an actor and director who's played key roles in Ama Asante's Bell, David Cronenberg's A Dangerous Method, Cosmopolis, and Maps to the Stars, and Denis Villeneuve's Enemy. You might also have seen her in A Royal Night Out, Dracula Untold, or even The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Seriously, she's everywhere. This winter, Sarah co-stars with James Franco in the new miniseries 112263, launching in the U.S. on Hulu this Monday, February 15th, and in Canada on Super Channel Wednesday, February 17th. Her latest film is James Shamus' Indignation, which bowed at Sundance last month and makes its international premiere this week at the Berlin Film Festival. Sarah chose Cleo from 5 to 7, Agnes Varda's breakthrough 1962 drama starring Corinne Marchand as a young singer who spends an afternoon in Paris awaiting the results of a biopsy. A cinema verite character study, it contains a universe of feeling within its deceptively simple premise, and it also creates one of the most fully realized female characters to that point, and it does so so casually that you might not even notice until your second or third viewing. But you will notice. Sarah certainly has. This is someone else's movie. Do people ever have notes? Oh, yeah. Okay, because I have notes. Of course you do. I have some notes. No, no. I just jotted them down because... Well, well I'll tell sure you, you why later, <laughs> but I'll tell you why later. <laughs> what I what I find is that people get so caught up in the expectations, right, that they have for themselves. It's nothing right. for me. Um, <laughs> the point of the point of the show is to just let people tell the audience, the imaginary whoever's out there audience, about the thing that they love. Mm. And so I do very little. I just okay. feel the movie back. I'm not, okay. not going to test you. <laughs> but you have seen it. <laughs> I, I have. I, I just watched it again um, Sunday night. I noticed that you have the box set, too. I, well, I, well, yeah. I actually, I'm really proud of you for having the box set. <laughs> I, this is my embarrassing failure of nerve story. I took the box set with me to a breakfast interview with Agnes Varda. Oh, my God. And I didn't pull it out because I didn't want a fanboy. Right. But for God's sake. I know. Uh, it was me. It was really great. It was actually, it was when she was here with um, Beaches of Agnes, so right. 2008, I yeah. guess. Uh, and it was during the film festival. And it was her and me and three younger women journalists, mm-hmm. all in their 20s, who clearly knew who she was and were terrified of her. Right. And she was so warm and so... Have you had the chance to meet her? I have. Isn't she fantastic? <laughs> She's amazing. I just And I'm the same way. I met her in L.A. I was, I was there... On, for work um, and I you know there's I think it's called the Arrows Theater in Santa Monica oh yeah 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 it's a tiny little art house cinema Jessica Chastain told me once that that was her education she I'm dropping names yeah uh, it's really she went there with her friends when she was it's a great theater and uh, and I was there and I saw that there was going to be an Agnes Varda double bill of Cleo from 5 to 7 and Vagabond and then mm. she would be there for the Q&A afterwards and I went and I took a friend of mine who didn't know who Agnes Barta was and I was just so I just gushed so hard and all throughout the Q&A everyone was asking questions and I was sitting there thinking oh this that's such a dumb question if anyone (laughs) knows her work they would never have asked that question and then and but she was so she was so humble and gracious Mm -hmm. and incredible and then afterwards I went up to her 
and I could I totally fangirled I couldn't say anything I was so in awe of her and I just kind of shook her hand and said what an honor it was to meet her and yeah she's I think like you want to say that she's on I, I honestly don't think she thinks she occupies the space in cinema that she does mm-hmm. and at the same time she must be aware of it because of the films that she's now making which sort of trade on it and play on it mm-hmm. but I think that's how this works right like you 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 create something that goes out into the world and is immediately larger than you mm-hmm. and then you can never fully live up to the impression of yourself that people have mm-hmm. so some people try and you get Shatner yeah. and and then there are people who like Vardo is just like ah, you know what thank you so much I'm working on something new would you like to hear about that yeah and we talked this, this thing for the journalists for the the, the the three young women and myself and a woman who was shadowing me for now that day oh, wow. and she knew who she was and she was just like oh my god this is the first thing we do today like, yeah. but she gave us an hour like she just yeah. wouldn't stop she but to me I think that's kind of what a true artist is mm-hmm. I think that now filmmakers create their own persona and and kind of yeah. use that to create a separation between the audience and the, or the critics or whatever and, and their work but to me She's just a true artist. She has no. She transcends any labels, any boxes, any branding, anything, and is just kind of this, you know, amazing open creator who's yeah. just been creating for her pretty much her entire life. Yeah, and she follows that impulse wherever it will take her. So, coming back to Cleo now after mm-hmm. what fifty years of her work mm-hmm. it was really remarkable because it's so much more um, straight. In, in terms of its... Pro- well, it has to be because it's chronologically structured. Right. But it's also much more... It's a linear narrative. Yeah. And focused. Like, mm-hmm. intensely focused. Mm-hmm. Even even the diversions are, are only for 30 seconds instead of three or four minutes, which is what she does now. And, mm-hmm. and I love the diversions that she has. And in Cleo, it's looking at people or observing just that little shot of the kittens playing behind her that goes on a bit too long because the kittens yeah. are adorable. And yeah, why yeah. would you cut away? Yeah. But that impulse is always there. It's just so much more controlled, and I assume it's simply because of budgetary restrictions and time. Right. She talks about that in the in the stuff on the Criterion disc on the supplements. Yeah. That they only had this much of everything. Right. But what what I feel from it is that she's making the absolute most of everything in every second. Mm-hmm. Well, time is a really interesting component in the film because mm-hmm. it's set in real time. It takes place over an hour and a half. And um, and and really, Cleo, the pop singer at the center of the entire film, is faced with at the beginning of the film her own mortality, yeah, or immortality, really. And uh, and so she's waiting for these test results. And so you have the ticking clock right off the top of the film while she's having the appointment with the tarot card reader. Yeah. And then so so time is really like the focus of the film is that you have this the the linear narrative, the real everything in real time, and then you have this idea of of um, a romanticized time of life. And so there's, it's kind of, she's playing those two things off of each other, which is another reason why I really love film. Yeah. So the most, the, the key question, uh, what was your first exposure? When did you first see it? Yeah. So I saw this film. I started my degree at Queen's University and I was in film 101. I was 18. Mm-hmm. And this was one of the first films that we watched. And oh, wow. it really just cracked my head open i i remember i because i i've been acting for a long time and i dabbled in acting growing up as a child actor mm-hmm. uh, and and when i finished high school my parents i said to my parents oh i think i'll go to la and my parents looked at me and said 
Uh, no, <laughs> no, you're not going to be doing that. Uh, you can go to school, and we highly recommend you take a full year off of acting and study whatever you want to study, wherever you want to study it. And so I went to Queens. I took a full year off acting, and I decided to major in film and theater. And so I was in this film class, and it was the first film that I think I ever really saw that was outside of patriarchal cinema. Okay. And it blew me away because I'd never seen female subjectivity criticized in such a way and then also indulged in in such a way and then also promoted mm -hmm. in such a way. And, and I, you know, and also there's the, the kind of secondary element of as a performer, as a woman kind of coming of age and, and leaving, you know, younger kind of roles and entering adulthood, uh, at the height of the manic pixie dream girl in cinema, sure. what what did it mean to me to be a performer and to be uh, an object in film, which I loved? And so all of those questions kind of just mind mind was blown, and I and it really just changed my whole perspective about cinema, filmmaking, performing, um, critical thinking, film theory, uh, all those things, and. And I and I fell in love with Agnes Varda and then became a big fan of Agnes Varda and watched all of her films and and so it started also a, a passionate you know love for one of my favorite filmmakers of all time um, and then it also made me become very self-critical about my work and and what I wanted my work to be like uh, so so that was eighteen right. I'm twenty eight now <laughs> so ten years later. Uh, and I've revisited this film a lot in the past ten years, and uh, it was it, so when you when you asked me what film you know would you like to promote, I I feel I felt like uh, I had I had to say Cleo from Five to Seven because it affected me so deeply. Um, but then watching it now as an, as you know ten years later, uh, it was interesting to see how different I I found it. Yeah, and how much more. Uh, critical I was of the of the character at the heart of the film Cleo um, and how much I despised her watching it now uh, in the beginning yeah. um, and so it was a real kind of interesting exercise for me to watch this this film again okay I mean for me like I get that with the rules of the game that's the one that, that mm -hmm. John Harkness nailed perfectly said come back to it every five years no matter what else you're doing in your life you will you'll find yourself empathizing with a different person mm -hmm. you and it's the film is the, that was his perfect example of subjectivity in mm -hmm. cinema because yeah. the film is set in stone it hasn't changed maybe there'll be a restoration here or there but you know everyone has his reasons just you just you just learn what that means every time you come back to the film it means oh that's right this person also this person also it's like a prism Cleo by focusing on a single character really makes you re-examine why you're responding in a certain mm -hmm. way which is this really interesting answer mm -hmm. to what Renoir was doing, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, that's really interesting. I never. <laughs> I mean, I, I find myself this this time this watch through. I found myself much more interested in Milieu yeah. because of the the just the handheld the documentary feel of it that it's happening. And I thought, like, is this what French neorealism could have been? Mm -hmm. Like, if they if she'd run with this instead of going in the other direction mm -hmm. and and becoming more of an artful narrative filmmaker I guess self-consciously artful I suppose is, but that sounds negative it's not what she did but but if she'd gone with this approach would it have spawned a different movement would it have changed everything because it's really 
unlike anything else and, and of a piece with everything else that she's done. It's a really right, weird Right, yeah, it's definitely point. a standalone piece. And yeah. it probably, I think it was the most commercially successful film that she did, too. Yeah, so, probably not surprising, uh, right? Yeah, um, but I also was really interested in talking about it, too, because recently I've just been reading so much about the millennial generation and mm. uh, generation generation z and being a millennial and and thinking back on my own initial response to this film and thinking about the there's there's just so much dialogue right now about the inherent narcissism of my generation sure and um and and watching this film again and thinking of the way that it's shot in relation to shows that informed and shaped women of my generation like sex in the city for example which is essentially the same conversation of a portrait of a woman set against, you know, a city, a, a, a major metropolis. And then also, uh, in light of all of the kind of media hysterity, his, you know, yeah, about the Kardashians yeah. and about um, how much they've repopularized the female as object and how they've taken pride in creating this voyeurism between their audience and and um, themselves as an object of desire. Yeah, and I feel like they're also selling vapidity, which really bothers me. What's like vapidity? Emptiness. Oh yes, the, the, yeah. That okay. there is nothing to. Well, that. that's the thing is that a lot of the times when you hear people talk about the Kardashians, people say, "What are they even famous for? They don't do anything." But really, they've 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 pinpointed everything that we love about voyeurism and scopophilia, and that's. Yeah, yeah. Looking at something that we desire, and they epitomize that. And I think that notion is also in direct dialogue with this film, because Cleo is very self-aware of herself as an object of desire, and she's constantly looking at herself in the mirror. She's constantly, you know, walking through the city, you know, feeling people's gaze, and and it's all about the gaze, this film, until Mm -hmm. halfway through the film, when she gives this performance, and she sings this song, and she starts singing it, it's called Without You, and she starts singing it, and she's reading the lyrics, and then she looks up directly into the camera, returns the gaze, acknowledges the audience, and from that moment on, the film becomes not so much about her being looked at, but her doing the looking. Yeah, yeah, very And much. so that is like, ah, oh, what a great, you know, moment in cinema and what a great moment for the female as the object. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think all of those things are really relevant today, um, especially with pop culture and performance. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised no one's tried to remake it. Even you know, like just oh, but people have. So Madonna tried to get the rights to it. Sure. No, I mean no one's ripped it off. Yes. Like, yeah. That we haven't seen ten of them this year because. Well, yeah. I theoretically, think, it should be possible. I think it's because she owns all of the rights to mm. her films and is still alive. Yes. So I think yeah. that there's that. But just going back to what you were saying earlier about her, you know, re- making these works of art, making these films, and then releasing them, and they kind of take on this other life force. And people of all different generations keep discovering her work and keep, you know, promoting her work. I think it's even more relevant that she kind of was the first person to really, woman to really self-finance a lot of her films and create her own production company. Mm -hmm. And then to kind of, so to kind of put yourself on the line for your work 
and then have it still be discovered and still be popular is yeah. also this incredible feat as an artist. Yeah, I mean, there are people, there are women who worked within the studio systems in the U.S., like Ida Lupino, yeah. but it wasn't the same kind of, I mean, it, it was not taking everything and, and making it yours. Yeah. And she, especially coming out of the French New Wave, which was so defined and so thoroughly defined mm-hmm. by three or four filmmakers who had specific, intimidating artistic points of view. I mean, mm-hmm. Truffaut was an entertainer, but he was still an incredible artist. Mm-hmm. Godard, less focused on entertainment, more focused on cinematic reinvention. But mm-hmm. again, you know, René, you, the, the more time you spend in the French New Wave, it's amazing that anyone else tried something after those two. Mm-hmm. And then to have Varda be sort of on the periphery and, and then just push her way through and make a film that is at least as worthy... Yeah. of standing alongside them mm-hmm. and then continue her career mm-hmm. is, is yeah it's remarkable and I would think that France was not necessarily so conducive to female um, uh, accomplishment at the time I mean it was post-war they were they were all still pretty focused on I mean the masculine culture that that Godard is espousing yeah that's, absolutely. that's not invented that was there yeah and I think that that's one thing that I always that always really spoke to me um, artistically was that she really believed that, you know, she really believed in the semiotics of cinema. She mm-hmm. really believed that cinema was a language. But she also believed in authorship and was a true auteur. And she also believed in gender. She she mm-hmm. said that she does think that, you know, cinema is gendered. If I'm going to tell you a story from my perspective, that will be a gender that will be from a gendered lens. And and it's Refreshing, I think, at a time where a lot of female filmmakers are are kind of in the midst of this feminist backlash where they don't want to be labeled female filmmakers. Mm-hmm. They don't want their work labeled feminist. They just want it. They, they want to kind of transcend those labels, which I can understand. You know, one part of me understands, but the other part of me is, you know, also thinks, well, how can you not acknowledge gender in when you're talking about perspective and certainly in this film when you're talking about identity and and how identities are constructed and how the female identity is constructed because in cinema identity and gender is a highly constructed oh, yeah. thing and and it's something that you know we all that's the reason why we love to watch cinema so i love that she kind of owns that in such a strong way too because it's refreshing yeah and we can understand i mean the, the film lets us understand mm-hmm. that cleo's um first crisis is a performance that mm-hmm. she is doing she is playing uh, someone even says or her assistant says right away you know like you're so dramatic all the time you, mm-hmm. you play into this but she is inhabiting a role that she thinks she's supposed to play and mm-hmm. it isn't until the song and the change of clothes mm-hmm. that she starts doing anything that feels like an honest response mm-hmm. to her own feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, she's letting the tarot reader tell her how to feel. She's letting her friend tell her how to feel. Mm-hmm. She accepts the free coffee mm-hmm. you know, on the house because someone is trying to hit on her, but also because it's a free coffee, and why wouldn't you if yeah. you're feeling badly? But I would argue that she knows she's going to get the free coffee, and that's mm. why she does the sniveling, and that's yeah. why she kind of plays them. So it is all performance. I think it is. Yeah. I really do. I think it is. And another thing that I, I noticed kind of re-watching this film was the, in, in the in the maison scene, you often see um, references to marriage, like when she's in the yeah, hat yeah. shop. I'd never noticed the, the 
bride, the, bridal the bridal mannequin yeah. in the background, and I thought, oh, that's so genius. And then uh, also the this kind of how children play this almost for, foreboding, um, like very kind of eerie role in the film as well. When she when she sings when she when she sings the song in her apartment, and then she leaves her apartment, and there's that small toddler outside playing this really creepy little piano and it's just like oh it's so good it's like (laughs) really just kind of rejects any kind of maternal instincts that you know um strong female leads traditionally are supposed to have and that's Mm. what another reason why i love that film is Mm. because as vapid and empty as cleo can be in the beginning she really dodges any kind of female archetype by you know, subverting all of those things in one way or another by the end of the film. And that's yeah. another thing that's kind of genius about the movie yeah. is that she starts off really vapid and empty and then, um, and at the end is, 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 you know, much more self-aware. Yeah. I think there's a, there's definitely a sense, I mean, it isn't until she's paired with someone who doesn't know who she is or, and has no expectations of her that we even have the first glimpse of who she wants to be. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's not, uh, in terms of questions of identity, I think Cleo, know, Cleo knows who she is throughout, mm-hmm. but she won't show it to people. Mm-hmm. And it isn't until the last half hour of the film, really, that, mm-hmm. that we start to see that door open. Mm-hmm. And it's because maybe she's finally aware that she's about to not be. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the mortality thing, this really surprised me, actually. You, you mentioned the, um, uh, the fortune teller, but I had forgotten watching the film again that the Varda is so careful about revealing that information. It takes a long time before we even know where the problem is. Mm. I think it was. I, I remember thinking, it's like, oh yeah, she says it's in my belly, but it's a good forty forty five minutes in. I was yeah. really surprised by that. Yeah, that if you had wandered into this film in nineteen sixty two, you wouldn't necessarily know why she's at the. I mean, now we know yeah. because it's the defining concept of the film. Right. But to walk in cold and not know that it's about a woman who might be dying, yeah, or who thinks she is, yeah. Uh, for the for the entire film, but that's the that's the way that Varda engages with the audience and and kind of makes you self critical is because you don't have to care about that because mm-hmm. she's this pretty object that we're all kind of you know experiencing this weird voyeurism as she walks through the city and she's like super tall and extremely beautiful and wearing this really weird wig and, and yeah uh, I, I always forget about the wig until yeah. she takes it off and, yeah and it's just like oh that's right yeah and so and and that's kind of the 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 trick that she plays on you is you're like why am i empathizing with this woman um and i mean am i being superficial because i'm empathizing with this woman she hasn't really earned anything right. from us but we just do and then and then she kind of flips that on it on on its head later in the film. Yeah, and her, I mean, I think on some level we're we're that's what's that's what narrative does, right? It mm-hmm. tells you you're going to follow this person whether you like her or not. Yeah, her name is in the title. There's no question that this is the person the film will be following. Yeah, yeah. So of course we're strapped in with her. Mm-hmm. But yeah, she in the end is deserving of our empathy. Mm-hmm. But it takes us a while. It takes the movie a while to teach us that. Mm-hmm. And that's. Yeah, so you you said you were more frustrated with her this time, or angry at her this time. <laughs> yeah. So what, what was it? I was just highly critical of her okay. in the beginning because of how vapid she is. I, I guess I had forgotten how you know when she looks in the mirror and she says things like, uh, um, 
uh, ugliness is a kind of death and (laughs) you still have your beauty little butterfly and just those things you kind of think like that is so you know that's so ridiculous those those kinds of things are so ridiculous to think and and she's just so vapid and when she's in the hat shop kind of trying on all the hats and you just think oh this is so disgusting Mm -hmm. who is she you know and then and then of course what I really liked watching it again is this the reminder of how the female as performer can recreate her identity again and again and again and again and again. And yeah. I love that play throughout the entire film. And you see it not only with Cleo, but you see it with her friend who's posing nude for mm-hmm. the artists. I love the scene when she walks into the artist's studio and you see the female body sculpted in all these different forms from all these different perspectives. Yeah, there's that geometric thing in one corner. Yeah, and she's just kind of walking through and the camera's kind of over her shoulder following her through this, um, basically these these man-made constructions of, of woman and then you see her friend who's there naked as the model um, and then as the class quickly ends, she jumps off, puts her dress on, and then they have this great little discussion about about the female body. Mm-hmm. And when Cleo says, "How can you do that? Aren't you ashamed?" And she said, "Oh, well, they're not looking at you know, they're not looking about whether or not it's right or wrong. They're looking at the they're looking at form." Yeah, doesn't she say at, like, "I cease I cease to exist" at one point, or that yes. she just becomes uh, an, an idealization? Yeah, and that's such a, and and the, that little kind of conversation that they have as they're leaving the art studio is such a so loaded and is so pregnant with ideas of identity and female identity and how it's constructed and how I I was thinking about it too when she was singing the song again in that middle point in the film Mm -hmm. and 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 the song is is without you and I was watching it again and I was listening to the I was lo- I was looking at the the English translation of the lyrics and it was just I thought for the first time I thought oh wow you know and maybe I was just really in in my own <laughs> you know like spiral of how much I love this movie but I was like oh yeah she's singing to the audience about the male gaze she's talking about losing the gaze and losing herself and herself ceasing to exist without it as a performer certainly possible and I was like oh love Agnes Martin so much (laughs) Uh, my my take on it is that now I just I was trying to figure out how familiar because they dropped the phrase chemotherapy in the film yeah that surprises me every time it's just oh they had that in it like that level of understanding of of cancer treatment and how kind of laissez-faire the doctors is like oh yeah you do a little chemo and then you're gonna be out of there spoilers but you've seen this movie by now probably if you're listening (laughs) hopefully you've already pre-ordered the Agnes Barta box set on Criterion open for the Blu-ray guys get on that (laughs) Uh, but but yeah there is that matter of factness to it which is great because again it just deflates all the tension that we've been experiencing but it also feels weird and patriarchal and dismissive right because Mm -hmm. we've been with her and we're just as worried as she is and to him for having him say oh two months you know silly girl you'll be fine really that's what that would have been like that whole madman approach to relating to women yeah on a professional level that's really weird but it also to like this time around it recolors my my 
uh, my experience of the of the the hat stores because she's looking at hats because she's thinking she's going to lose her hair. Mm. Is she like how much yeah. do they know? How much foreshadowing is here? Mm-hmm. Is that what disappearing means? Is that what ugliness means? I mean, mm-hmm. is she worried about that? Is she not afraid of death, but of not looking uh, perfect? Yeah, because oh, yeah. so much of her is invested in this. Yeah, and you would ne- like the first. I don't know, three times I've seen that film, I had never even thought about it. But yeah. it's there, Yeah, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it's intentional. It must be, because I think so, too yeah. smart not to. Absolutely. But I think also the the idea that she's gone on this kind of catharsis and has, has in a way, reconciled the idea that she will she is not immortal. Mm-hmm. You know, and she says that even with the song, you know, with the composers. How long does a song last? How long does it last? You know, that idea of wanting to be immortal. She's eventually reconciled by the time the doctor tells her about her illness and the chemotherapy. I think that's another reason why it's not as prominent. Because she could have chosen to also make more out of it as a filmmaker. She could have chosen to put score underneath it. Or she could have chosen to shoot it a different way. But she doesn't. And so you're right. I do. I think it's really intentional. Yeah. It's I, It's such a oh, it's such a great film to unpack. Yeah. Just generally speaking. And what it... I'm just glancing every time I, I turn my head. I see the uh, the Varda box. The 4 by Varda box. It's just like there's so much other stuff she had to do and was going to do. Yeah. It's... Uh, but we really... We haven't even mentioned the name of... of yeah. The actor who plays Cleo, because the character is so thoroughly defined by the movie, I think, as a human person, as, a, as an individual. But uh, Corinne Marchand is just amazing. And I was really surprised. She mostly did television after this. Well, There's... she was a singer. She so was she actually primarily a acting. singer, more more so than an actor. Okay. And, um, and that's something that kind of makes... That's, you know, although the film does stand outside of, of, Cleo, of uh, Varda's other work, it still has the documentary approach in the sense that it's shot in real time, mm-hmm. the use of a pop singer instead of, you know, an actress. Like, those kinds of devices are all very much present in all of her work, too. Yeah, it's, um, it really is something. I, I, I just keep coming back to how, how dazzling it is, even now, like, having watched it, I think this is my fifth time seeing it straight mm-hmm. through, and I've seen pieces of it over and over again. But it is just such a, like, it's just so rich and... and and uh, I saw uh, The Walk last night, the Zemeckis film. Oh, yeah. And its opening sequences in Paris, I'm pretty sure, are recreated from the same locations because that's Paris to him. Mm-hmm. Like, it's probably not where Philippe T really practiced his high-wire act and annoyed people, mm-hmm. which is what we see in the film. But it's like, oh, yeah, that tobacco store is... I know that sign. That's the recreation. And it was set in 1970... I think it opens in 72 or 73, so it would have been 10 years after but he's very clearly recreating that in I think it must have been Montreal because the whole thing was was shot there but that like either that part of Paris is so incredibly iconic in his mind or that is the Paris that we all know because of this movie and five or six others that happened at the same time yeah well that's what I love about um, that's why I think I despise the opening of the film and the beginning of the film so much is because Varda does this thing where she says oh this is your nostalgic idea of Paris this is the left bank this is you know very cool very artsy very you know there's just so much to want to look at and then she gives you this beautiful woman in the heart of Paris and it's everything that you think that Paris is going to be 
Um, and then and then she says, now, see how beautiful this is? Well, look at how ugly it is. Look at how superficial mm-hmm. and gross your nostalgia is for this city and this kind of woman is. And that's what I feel like I was experiencing in the beginning of the film is because okay. you... You watch it and you think, oh, no, Paris, I love Paris. Paris is so beautiful. And then, oh, look at, you know, I love, you know, she's so beautiful. She's so chic. Look at her. And then she opens her mouth and you just go, (laughs) gross. And I think that that is is also what's kind of what what I was talking about earlier with the whole kind of connection to this obsession with reality television and obsession with, you know, the selfie or like Kim Kardashian and the culture and everything they represent is that it's so visually conscious and cultivated but completely empty at its core and that that's also the another real kind of arc that connects the two of them yeah I wonder if that's why nobody's tried to knock it off because Mm. now you would have her friends be obsessed with whatever else was in their lives they'd be Mm. too busy to even listen to her Mm -hmm. she's very much the center of the world for the characters that she interacts with mm-hmm. uh, and even like accidentally because Varda was shooting her with a camera without you know clearly with a small crew just following her around but there there are scenes where when she she's on the bus or when she's just walking heads are turning to follow and they're looking at the camera clearly yeah, they're looking yeah. at what's going on because they look straight into the lens but it makes you think oh they're following her and it's yeah. brilliant like yeah. it's a great device because it instantly shows us just how much attention is being paid to her well I was thinking a lot about contemporary films and female subjectivity mm-hmm. and thinking, you know, what is a film that could kind of be related to this that I've seen that's made in... And I think it's so interesting to be talking about a film like this kind of after the summer blockbusters, which are super... Phallocentric, you yes, can say it. Yeah, okay, phallocentric. I'm and uh, sure. and uh, and it, it feels so refreshing to watch a film like this. And then I was thinking about Diary of a Teenage Girl, mm-hmm. which I don't know if you've seen yet. I have, but yeah. It, and and you've just finished you made a real night out with the star, right? Yeah, with Belle Pally, who's phenomenal in this film. And and I was thinking like, oh yeah, that's a recent example of a film that's completely told from female subjectivity and it was interesting because it was at Sundance this year and I, I and I saw Belle and we were talking about um, her press for the film and and she was saying like oh yeah it's really interesting because some critics think that it, it create it's this like nostalgic look at female sexuality and it like romanticizes it in some in some way and that was some of the feedback that, that she got but I think I think uh, I think Cleo falls under the same criticism and so at the least the beginning is that you you know we're so seduced by Paris by by this woman by the aesthetic by the kind of poppy early 60s you know music and and production design and all that and then and then there's such depth though underneath it that that really supports everything aesthetic that's happening and I think the same is true of Diary of the Teenage Girl yeah oh my god I would never think of it that way yeah that's just not how i'd frame that film at all i was i was really i was amazed at the the fact that there is almost nothing happening for so much of that film that mm-hmm. it's just allowing itself to be internal mm-hmm. and that there's still tension mm-hmm. that you're in it with her mm-hmm. and you get to spend i mean it, there are so many movies that don't understand that it is possible to show a character making a mistake and let the audience know that the movie is un- is aware of what's happening right. but doesn't side with it necessarily. Yeah. And just to be ambiguous or ambivalent, yeah. that's a power. Mm-hmm. And and absolutely that's what happens in this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I did not get... Oh, 
nostalgia. No, it's horrible. It I also think that there's a really there's a reason why this film hasn't been made again, and it's because I think that there's a real kind of dichotomy between in a film the woman is either the object or she or it's it's told from her perspective. Right, right. And I think that it's it's very difficult to reconcile those two, which I think Varda is trying to do in the film, and that's a whole you know brilliance behind the film is that it doesn't it, it reconciles. And acknowledges that the woman is object, um, but she can transcend that. And I think that that is kind of like the whole point about mainstream filmmaking is that it doesn't ever acknowledge that the woman is an object. Yeah, it can't. Yeah. I mean, if you do that, the game's over. Yeah. I I think of two movies that sort of do it. Okay. And it's weird that they're both about royalty. Uh, Coppola's Marie Antoinette and Valet's Young Victoria. Right. And they both allow a certain element of self-awareness both in the cinematic presentation and in this in the subject themselves like what blunt does in, early on in young victoria mm-hmm. is to sort of acknowledge her power but also as a monarch but also refuse it mm-hmm. in a weird way and and push back in strange ways that tell you that she knows what she's doing even though the movie is pushing her into these confrontations because that's what happened historically there's a much more of a sense of an intelligence of behind the scenes mm-hmm. and and with marie antoinette I think it's the music that does it, but it creates just enough of a disconnect that Dunst is able to kind of show us how... Because that version of Marie Antoinette was sort of presented as a sheltered child who really had no idea what she was getting into, and then gradually becomes aware just enough to realize that it's all going to go badly. Right, yeah. Yeah. But, But neither of them comes close to doing what Varda does, which is make the movie itself the vehicle of self-realization. And I don't think you're in... That was pretentious. I I don't think that you're in their... I I, I don't think that you're in their head. No, no. I don't think so either. You get flashes, but... Yeah, I don't think... I really feel like when you're following Cleo throughout the city, like, you are in her... You know, you are in her consciousness. She she's speaking exactly what she's thinking at any given moment every time she looks into the mirror. And yeah. so I think that you you experience her in a different way. You become her in a way when you're wa- when you're watching the film. You go on the journey with her as opposed to having a real distance. I think. Yeah. So much. So many of these episodes keep coming back to Roger Ebert's line about the empathy machine. That mm-hmm. that's what cinema is. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why people are. Like, I think that's why people pick the movies they pick is because they're the ones they feel closest to. Right. Um, and with and with Cleo too, when you you're right, we're in her head. It still puzzles me. Are we supposed to find the short, overly precious, the little silent film that she watches? Right. Because I think by that point in the movie, I have no patience for it. Really? It goes on and on and on. <laughs> I get it. I think it. You know, I understand what they're trying to do, but I'm trying to figure out if it's because Cleo is starting to count the minutes and is starting to like if it's starting to weigh on her. Is that why I'm sitting there going, Jesus, this won't end. Jesus, this won't end. I, I, I mean, how to play with an audience? I, I've never seen it with a full house, like in film school. How did that part of it go? I mean, it. I think it played really well. I don't know if there was a lot of. Yeah, I think it did play really well. Okay. That little, that little um, short within the film. You know, Godard is the guy yeah. in the film. Yeah. And... Oh, it, it, in terms of its historical significance, yeah, it's, yeah, it's hugely valuable. Yeah. I just think it's so. Uh, when I was watching it, I thought it was so interesting because it's so racist. Yeah, that too. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, oh, and here's just a sidebar of French racism. Yeah. Um, and is that how they thought it was in the silent era? Or is it a contemporary commentary for 1962? I honestly don't know. Yeah, well, I think it... 
I think it for me, I felt like it was a commentary on silent film and the female characters in silent film. Mm because that was it's pretty much exactly how most silent movies go yeah. and they're most silent films are incredibly sexist and sure and uh colonialist racist yeah yeah yeah, yeah. the era right that yeah was the popular entertainment yeah but i don't know i didn't find that it was very long when i was watching it no, um, it was interminable this time yeah i was really like this is six minutes this this is still going <laughs> i didn't realize it was six minutes i think it feels but long. i love the whole kind of concept of the two of them delivering the film to the theater and then watching it and then and her kind of leaving right after that and going on this walkabout basically yeah yeah yeah. no i know i didn't i don't know maybe i didn't pay pay more attention to that no you don't need to (laughs) but it's one of those things that i get it too as a bridge into a little slapstick a little silliness as a bridge into the much more serious movement in the final act of the film Mm -hmm. uh but it was one of those things that it, now it baffles me. It's like the musical interlude in Butch Cassidy. Okay. Where you just sit there and go, oh, this this played in 1969 and now I want to murder everybody. And raindrops keep falling on my head or the living strings or whatever those music numbers are. Yeah. You want to throttle the movie for thinking it's cool. Yeah, but those devices chiefly... Okay, so let's, let's explore this. Those mm. devices chiefly existed so that you could... Um, for voyeurism. Right. So that you could taken the female character it's like the the idea of a, of a woman singing in the film the performance the female performance of the film which is it's like every time zoe Deschanel sings it's like the narrative stops yep. and you take in the object and so i wonder if the short film is is less about taking in the object of the woman and taking in the object of the film and and pointing to the own artifice of the film itself which it does because it's very self-conscious, especially in the very beginning when you when she's walking down the stairs from the tarot card yeah, and she yeah. hear and you see the three cuts of her walking down. It, it's the same shot oh, repeated yeah. three times, and uh, or whether or not it's looking back into the camera, or whether it's at the end of the credits when it goes from black and white into color. Like those things, I feel like are devices that she uses to point to the the artifice of cinema, yeah. which is probably what she's doing in that short. I think so. Well, Maybe certainly, not short enough interlude. Yeah. <laughs> we could do with less. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, certainly the French New Wave is about, like, you know, if you want to make, if you want to criticize a film, make a film. So mm-hmm. this is clearly her interacting, Varda interacting with it. Yeah. As opposed to other montage distractions that would follow in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering now if I'm retroactively holding that against it because it just feels like I want to see what's happening with Cleo. I'm, I need to know how she feels. Yeah. Uh, and that's just my But maybe urgency. she's subverting that, that kind of desire that you have a, as an audience member. Is, is She's saying, no, yeah. Cleo is not the spectacle anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the spectacle. And instead of having her sing to you or look in the mirror or go hat shopping... You're going to. I'm going to give back to you what you're exactly what you're you're seeking as an audience member. Yeah, and of course, as a filmmaker, she is in absolute charge, right? She's going to show me whatever she wants to show me. I don't have a say. Yeah, I'm sitting here passively watching the film that she's made. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just I just wonder if like every repetition of it for me has just that's the one thing that I, I less <laughs> you're over it. for. You're over I'm it. done with it. <laughs> yeah, moving on. Maybe it's just Godard after film socialism. It's just like, come on. Yeah, <laughs> let's go. The last one wasn't bad. But uh, it's a weird place to be. I mean, you know, anything's going to look different and play differently half a century later. Yeah. But uh, that's the one thing that really stuck out to me is like, I think if your point was to make something that felt dated, you have succeeded. Right. But that's my own 
you know, cut, cut, cut. I want to, I want to move forward. I'm just doing Fred Ward and the player. Come on. There, there is something about them standing in a cinema as like these two young women, and then she cuts straight to this kind of diversion. Yeah. I think there's, there is something powerful about that. Whether or not you detested that, like I detested the beginning of the film. Yeah. It's funny. It's funny what your reactions are. Everyone has his reasons. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. Um, Rapping question, which okay. is the I will now make you do a hip hop. <clears throat> yeah. There's I still haven't found a way to lead into this, um, but the, I think hip hop is a great way. Hip hop is into a terrifying yeah. one. <laughs> nice. Uh, but the the final question of the of the show is always the same, which is is there anything you've borrowed or stolen or taken from Cleo mm. in your own work? Huh. Yeah. Well, I think I directed a half hour documentary. Um, show I did one episode it's called Real Side mm-hmm. and it was um, and they had approached me initially to be in an episode and to follow me um, because the show is essentially artists following artists and the point of collaboration and right. what that means to you and so I did it about three years ago that long because yeah. it only just aired yeah it just aired but we shot it three years ago wow and it was at a time where I started doing a lot of press for film and, um, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say unfortunately, but a major kind of component of doing press for film is in direct conjunction with fa- fashion magazines. Sure. And it, it's like one of the main avenues for you to discuss your work as an artist is in fashion magazines. And so I was shooting a lot for fashion um, and I was really uh, struggling with the idea of cultivating your image and giving up part of your image in the name of a fashion editorial or for a fashion publication, which ultimately has its own agendas about beauty and how you should look and all those things. And, yeah. Well, this and, is right around antiviral, right? Because you and I have had this conversation. Yes. We were talking about it. Before. Yeah. And, and I was doing a lot of shoots and I had started doing a lot of photo shoots with Caitlin Cronenberg, mm-hmm. who's David's daughter, and who I do, I've done three films with now. Yeah, she's a fantastic guy. She's really... Yeah, she's a great photographer, and she's very um, collaborative. So she... And one specific kind of thing that she does is she has these photo projects where she... You create a character with her, and then she photographs you through a narrative that you decide on, mm-hmm. uh, like the stills, like shooting stills on a film. Right. And so I decided to direct um, this episode about how we work together and kind of the difference between um, shooting for a major fashion publication versus a smaller fashion publication. And I think that my a lot of the what I was thinking about during that time is informed with by Cleo about that whole idea of being an object and claiming your space and how do you transcend that label and how do you do some of the seeing how do you control what uh who you are as an object in in a magazine Mm -hmm. and so i think a lot of that is influenced by cleo and how i shot the documentary is influenced by cleo as well okay and uh to to the other wind up which i've been thinking about since you mentioned it if you had the chance to run into varda again now i mean you obviously wouldn't be starstruck Uh, i think i still would be yeah there's a handful of people that still do that to me like i've just i've been doing this for more than half my life interviewing people and still there are people who i I have trouble kind of building up to yeah i think now uh i started my own production company 
a year ago. I think now I would be able to ask her more questions about um, actual production and and kind of her. I would love to ask her more about her company, mm-hmm. how she formed her company, um, her model for financing, those kinds of things. I'd be really. I would drop my fangirl and just kind of you know put my business hat on and ask her questions about that that I would be really interested to talk with her about and the other question I'm kind of really curious about if somehow a remake of Cleo came together no you can't touch a masterpiece where would you set it because it couldn't be Paris anymore oh man nowhere don't remake a great don't touch it you know it's 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 perfect and the thing about my whole philosophy about remaking films is that you should never remake great films because great films stand the test of time. Sure. Remake a bad film, make it from a different perspective, and make it a better film. That's what you should do. Yeah. Don't oh, no, remake I, great films because I, you watch a movie like this and and it's still so it's so relevant. It's still in direct conversation with pop culture and art and and so many issues about identity and and it, there's no need to remake it because it's it's it stood the test of time. Yeah. Oh no, I completely agree. I would throw myself in front of people who were, you know, the Ben Hur remake we were talking about earlier. <laughs> yeah. I, of course, it's inevitable. It's yeah. public domain. Yes. It's going okay. to happen. Fine. Uh, Exodus, Gods and Kings, all of that stuff. But I would throw myself in front of the producer who tried to do Lawrence of Arabia or 2001. I would, you know, like I would do murder to yeah. protect these yeah. films. Me uh, too. And I'm kind of glad you have that same yeah. <laughs> killer instinct. Thanks. <laughs> My thanks to Sarah Gadden, whose new series, 112263, premieres on Hulu in the U.S. this Monday, February 15th, and starts airing in Canada on Super Channel Wednesday, February 17th. You'll also want to keep an eye out for her new film, Indignation, opening later this year. You can find Sarah on Twitter at Sarah Gadden, all one word, S-A-R-A-H-G-A-D-O-N, and you can find Cleo from 5 to 7 on DVD in a very nice special edition from the Criterion Collection, either on its own or as part of the 4 by Agnes Varda box set. Get the box set. In the U.S., it's also streaming on Hulu+. Plus. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, or on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. And if you want to leave a review on iTunes, which would do remarkable things for our visibility, um, I don't know, maybe uh, do it with an accordion playing in the background. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.